You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, uh, Lanyap Podcast uh, by Stokes Family Office. Doug and Greg Stokes here. It is Fed Day, uh, March 22nd, and we're about 45 minutes away from just another major focus on Jerome Powell and uh, what the Federal Reserve is going to do with interest rates. Uh, consensus, I think, is uh, a 25 basis point bump in rates. I, I find it hard to believe that they're going to do anything um, after what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Silvergate Bank, and then the big news since our last uh, recording is Credit Suisse. Uh, went into a forced uh, marriage with UBS. So um, I guess we'll get, uh, we're going to find out soon, but what are you thinking with uh, what the Fed's going to do and, and, and you know, why does it matter, I guess, is the second component to this. Well, the whole idea behind the Fed raising rates to begin with is to essentially slow the economy down, slow the rate of lending down. And um, why the way that they do that is by increasing the cost of banks to borrow money from the Fed, which is then passed along to customers. So it basically slows the economy down. As a result of these, uh, the bank failures and what's going on in the whole banking system in the United States, banks are probably going to be averse to sending out deposits in the form of loans. So the problem may, the, Fed, the problem that the Fed is trying to address may in and of itself resolve itself essentially by virtue of the facts that banks are going to be less willing to lend money out. So you can make the argument that um, the Feds doesn't really need to raise rates anymore because the, jo- the job is being done by itself. The issue that we have really is that the Fed is looking at inflation and inflation, The one of the biggest components, of, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, one of the biggest components of inflation is uh, rent and housing, and those two items are both going down, but they're, the data that the Fed is looking at is lagging. And so the issue that we have really is from from the risk that we have is that the Fed is going to potentially continue to hike even though the problem has been solved. And, and on top of that, the problem is being solved by the, the fact that we have a sort of banking crisis that's going on in the economy right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that the markets are pricing in like a there's a, about a sixty percent chance or something like that of a twenty five basis point hike, and a forty percent chance that they pause. Um, but we we shall see. I, I'm probably I think that they're probably going to err on the side of um, raising rates higher because that's what they've they've been iterating to the markets this whole time. What ends up happening and how the markets respond to that is a whole other thing. Um, but it's just a like I, I think the way that I look at this whole banking crisis situation domestically is that it could be a sort of impetus for change in the in the dynamics of the marketplace. The Fed has been driving the markets, and the Fed's actions have been driving the markets for the last year. And it looks like, at least for now, that, that the, the beginning of the end may be approaching from a Fed rate uh, hike cycle if they raise one more time or maybe two more times or if they pause. So yeah. I'm very appreciative of that. 
I think, and maybe we just take a, speaking of pause, no pun intended, maybe we pause for a second and just describe how banking works for, I mean, nobody really gave a, a damn about um, really the inner work and workings of depositors and, and lending at banks, but it's probably important just to touch on really how this works. Banks, um, we, a lot of people have found out in the last couple of weeks that if you deposit money in at a bank, it, it's not like that bank just has a pile of cash sitting there to give you your money back once you go and, and ask for it. They, the way that banks make money and really the, the, how they're the economic driver in America is um, what, what's called you know, fractional reserves. And essentially what that means is banks take deposits in and then uh, lend them out to borrowers and then collect a seemingly collect a spread between the difference. So they pay you basically nothing on your deposits and make a loan for 5% and that they they have what's called net interest margin. So the difference between what they're lending and then what they're paying you as a depositor is what, what their net interest margin is. But the the real important piece here is that banks are required to have uh, a fractional reserve ratio of 10%. So for every dollar in deposit that they um, bring in, they can only lend out ten dollars in uh, in loans or less. And so, what happened was with Silicon Valley Bank is when everybody's asking for their money at once, the bank doesn't have the money; they've already lent it out, or in that case, bought, uh, bought uh, you know mortgage-backed securities or treasury bonds that had a lower value, and so um, weren't able to meet depositor demands to get their money back. Um, the reserve ratio was put into place after 2008, basically to curb the amount of lending that was going on and specifically bad lending. And so um, Dodd-Frank and the Federal Reserve Board basically figured that a 10% requirement or higher is uh, sufficient to really curb any major issues, potential major issues with uh, with runs on bank or bad loans or et cetera. But what Greg is saying, I think is exactly right, that uh, that banks in the aftermath of Credit Suisse or uh, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or Silvergate Bank, they're not gonna wanna loan in this environment with the, an issue that you know people may have a run on their bank too. They may be the next domino to fall. So lending's just gonna be a little bit more stringent in this environment, which curbs economic growth because we're a credit-based society and uh, you know businesses borrow money to invest and grow uh, or individuals do and so less lending is less economic growth but it also is you know higher reserves in the event that uh, there's depositors wanting their cash back specifically for regional banks that that are mo most of the lending comes from these regional banks uh, and we can pull up those stats but it's just crazy how important regional banks are uh, to society and to um, you know getting actual commercial loans done, and so uh, I think the Federal Reserve's problem in terms of raising rates is likely solved by banks becoming more conservative with uh, who they're lending to and the amount they're lending. Um, and so I would hope to see a you know a pause, or if there is a rate hike, one small one to finish this off. But I think the job has already been done. I agree. The issue is is that they're looking at this data that's like three to five months old, and making a decision. But if you just look at the facts on the ground, it doesn't. It looks a lot like we referenced trueflation in the last few episodes. Trueflation is a a 
a uh, real-time inflation measuring stick. And as of the, the, la- the last CPI report, inflation is at like 6%, according to what the government says. But according to Trueflation, it's like right around 4%. So the, the issue is the Fed's looking at that stale data. Um, there's data latency, one might say, in terms of what the Fed is looking at versus what's actually happening. And the problem is that if you've got inflation that's already down and then you've got a restrictive governmental entity that's overseeing the monetary policy, then um, you can have a you can have a sort of unforced error, which is the risk. We've also talked about the Fed raises rates until something breaks. And like we said, something broke in the banking system in the United States, although um, fortunate for the, the uh, venture capitalists at, at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and those at Signature Bank, their deposits above the FDIC limits were covered. Um, and the government has basically sort of implied that they will likewise do the same thing if there's another bank a collapse. There's an article in the paper, the Wall Street Journal, on another, um, ma- another uh, what they would deem as uh, important bank collapse, which is like I, that. There's some moral hazard there with uh, you know if there's a small community bank or a small regional bank that collapses and doesn't get um, coverage above two hundred fifty thousand. Um, I don't know how that would work out, but it's uh, that was the, that uh, you know Janet Yellen was was uh, in front of Congress answering questions and and uh, there was I think it was a senator from Oklahoma or something that was saying, well, what about my my regional bank in Oklahoma? Um, and and Janet Yellen implied that it was going to be up to the Federal Reserve Board, FDIC Board, and her to determine whether that your your Oklahoma bank is important. Um, so that's uh, I can see that as being an issue in the future, right? There's all kind of political implications as well too, because you're talking about a California bank and a New York bank, and the administration right now is likewise. Those are states that supported the current administration, so it'll be it'll be very interesting to see if if uh, if there's a like a, a a bank that backs a bunch of oil companies or tobacco <laughs> companies or something like that that fails uh, in a in a uh, Republican state, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I, I would I would imagine just from a just from a macro standpoint, it, the way I even though it was absolutely a bailout in terms of those two uh, bank failures, the system on the whole would have really experienced a lot of stress, and so. Even though it was a bailout, I think it probably was necessary to, to, to uh, avert a, a bigger crisis. Um, it, as it relates to what happened in Europe, this the, the really the Credit Suisse was one of the largest um, European banks and had been around, I don't even know how long, probably over a century. Um, they were acquired by UBS in a forced marriage over the weekend because essentially what was happening with Credit Suisse was also happening was the same thing that happened with um, with the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York, where wherein people and entities that had assets on de- on deposit with Credit Suisse saw their their associates pulling their monies monies out, and they did not want to be the sort of last uh, last man standing. You don't want to be the that what, what's the saying about uh, if you ever see a, a bear, you know, just yeah. just make sure you're with somebody who's slower. Right, exactly. Yeah, so. <laughs> Although <laughs> Credit Suisse to me seems like it was, it, it just seems so uh, coincidental that I, 
there has been talk for years about how this bank is like is doomed to fail and they've been involved in so much scandal like uh laundering money for mexican drug cartel and um (laughs) and just so i i don't know if this is like a situation in which like for like for example uh what april of 2018 so five years ago the bank was trading at uh almost $17 a share. And then in 2023, before this banking crisis, it was $3 a share. So I don't, I don't really, um, I, I'm not really buying that this was a, like there's major correlation between what was happening with Silicon Valley bank and the U S regional banks and this major globe, what G they call globally system, global system, systematically important bank. Um, I just think that this was like a, a an opportune time to basically fold this thing up and and get UBS to to take it over. But um, that's my conspiracy theory. I think that this bank is uh, it was sort of doomed to fail. And they had that Bill yeah. Huang thing. Remember that? Right. And so funny. So Bill Huang is this guy who uh, was he? Uh, where was he? Like he was Singapore. a tiger guy. Yeah. yeah be, all this um, and he. He had like these derivative contracts on for like, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times exposure to on the long and short side to like your meme stocks at like GameStop and a, a couple other of these, uh, these hot like COVID positions. And, uh, and he blew up and, um, you know, Credit Suisse and a couple other banks were left holding the bag because they had been the counterparty, um, to Bill Huang. And when he couldn't, pay they were left with these uh the exposures of these you know hundred and thousand times bets on some of these stocks and so the uh the ceo of credit swiss came out this week and said a lot of their doom was based because of the retail investor uh was uh caused caused the downfall of, of credit swiss and then you look back you're like um i think things like uh laundering money for drug cartels or uh creating derivative contracts with a guy that's going to do a hundred or a thousand to one bet on a meme stock is really the downfall, not necessarily your, um, traditional depositor that wants to move his money to, um, you know, JP Morgan and out of credit Swiss. But, um, anyway, did, did you see the, the news about, so over the weekend, basically what ended up happening was this is all unprecedented and what happened, what happens in these sort of these dynamic once in a lifetime events like credit Suisse has been around forever is that things happen quickly and the rules sometimes rules are made up as they go. And that happened a couple of times over the weekend. Normally what happens in the event of a acquisition of a company is this shareholders, of the board of director board of directors basically approve or deny the solicitation by an outside party to, to acquire the company, as you would imagine. But what ended up happening was the Swiss government basically preempted that, changed the law over the weekend, and uh, agreed to the sale of the uh, company, Credit Suisse, to UBS without shareholder consent. Additionally, normally the way it works is, so the shareholders actually were received like, I think it was like 30 cents on the dollar or something like that for their for their share um, they got like, uh, 80 cents per share for versus like a $2, uh, closing price or something like that the day before. Normally what also happens is 
in the event of a um, like an event of a sale or a bankruptcy or, or anything like that, the uh, first entity or the first stakeholder that's paid is the creditors, like people that lend money to a to an entity, and then the shareholders, the common shareholders that are taking more risk because they are getting they could have the potential for more reward get paid out last. And usually in the event of a bankruptcy, which was sort of the sort of flavor that Credit Suisse had, uh, the common shareholders would get basically nothing. The interesting thing that happened in this case was, the, the like I mentioned, the Credit Suisse shareholders got some compensation as a result of this takeover. And there was like $17 billion of bonds that were wiped out. So two unprecedented things happened over the weekend. The, the transaction took place without uh, shareholder approval or the involvement was in basically the, the laws changed over the weekend for this particular entity. And number two, bondholders, a certain classification of bondholders, $17 billion worth of bondholders were wiped out while wherein the shareholders got some consideration. So things happen quickly. Rules change quickly in times of crisis. Um, and there are some bag holders in this particular situation, specifically these this classification of bondholders, and in the provision of these in the prospectus of these um, these these particular bonds, it did it does specify that in the event of a of a an event a qualifying event, they may ne- they may not receive any sort of consideration and may be wiped out before uh, common shareholders. But I'm not. I'm sure the whole, not a whole lot of entities that purchased those bonds read that prospectus. Yeah, um, pretty crazy that a. I mean, the way that that this typically works is uh, there's a waterfall effect of you know in a liquidation, um, your senior debt holders get paid first, um, followed by. Uh, junior debt holders followed by preferred equity followed by common equity um, and this was this was considered a really a junior debt piece that they basically said sorry um, you know read read the prospectus uh, you you're not entitled to anything here even though common equity holders are going to get paid out so um, pretty crazy um, that's a it, it's that's a that's a wild one just with everything going on with credit Swiss Um Greg, you want to shift to your, your before we hit record, you're saying something really um, comical as it relates to just human nature. And so why don't we uh, why don't we spend the last five minutes here just talking about that? Yeah. So we've referenced Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett a dozen times over the course of the last year and a half that we've been doing this podcast. These two gentlemen are both in their 90s. I think Munger is 99 and um, Buffett is 92. And uh, the way that they the, the edge that they have from an investment perspective, they, they believe that they have a, a greater understanding as they've gotten older of human behavior. And what, what Charlie Munger specified in detail on the Founders podcast, most re- recently recorded and released a week ago, was that um, he looks at everything through the lens of history and human nature doesn't change and the same natures repeat, for, uh, for, repeat forever. He also goes into some other really insightful things that we're, gonna, we're not going to expand upon today. But as it relates to this human nature piece, I, I, I noticed a couple of things that that uh, behaviors that I've that I've see, that I saw uh, happen 
most recently in the newspapers that also have happened throughout history. Specifically, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about how J.P. Morgan had uh, purchased physical metals, specifically physical physical nickel. It's kind of a tongue twister. And what ended up they ended up discovering that there was just a bag of stones. Yeah, so nobody checked. Yeah, nobody checked. They just bought some some nickel. Uh, or some stones, essentially. For it was it wasn't a huge dollar amount. Um, it was like one point two million dollars, which is you know nothing for J.P. Morgan. But it reminded me of the uh, there's the oldest in the British Museum, the oldest recorded complaint note uh, was in this. I'll read about this in detail. But it, the complaint tablet to Ia Nasir is a clay tablet that was sent to ancient Ur. Written in 1750 BCE, it was a complaint to a merchant named Yasir. I'm, I'm totally mispronouncing that. From a customer named Nani, and it was written uh, in cuneiform. And basically, it's it was it was complaining about the quality of copper that was sent to this individual, like uh, you know, th- like three thirty eight hundred years ago or something like that. So J P Morgan was likewise on the on the. Uh, receiving end of uh, something that's been going on forever. Now, obviously, there's same, the same behaviors, the, the same human behaviors will always exist. Um, people fight in wars, et cetera. What's going on right now in the Ukraine and the behavior that's happening has obviously been going on forever and will likewise be, they'll have several iterations of that. But you can say the same thing about uh, people taking advantage of other people in an economic setting. And uh, J.P. Morgan had that had experienced that same situation that this individual um, that wrote on a clay tablet in ancient Mesopotamia yeah. <laughs> had experienced. It's also <clears throat> it, it dives. It's also human nature related to investing that people either either overreact positively or negatively to to news, and we've seen that uh, in in droves over the last couple of years and. Maybe one thing to close on this as it relates to, um, you know, trying to shelter yourself from that that emotional, either positive or negative emotion related to market volatility and, and the human behavior associated with that. Um, Nick Majuli, who um, is, is on Twitter and, and um, we, we've spoken to before, maybe a couple of years ago, but um, he... He wrote a book uh, called Just Keep Buying that came out like a couple of months ago. And uh, and he uh, basically the premise is that despite everything going on in the world, uh, historically, it's been a good idea just to continue to invest uh, in the markets, uh, whether it's a positive or negative uh, cycle that we're in. And he had this really good uh, data. This is from March 9th that he says, if you had invested $100 a month into the S&P 500 since the beginning of 2022, so the S&P was down 20% in 2022. So $100 a month through dollar cost averaging into the S&P 500 since the beginning of 2022, guess how much your portfolio is down by the end of February 2023, $32 or 2% just keep buying. And the whole premise there is um, because there was so much volatility last year, some of these months you're buying at, at very um, attractive prices, whether it's you know 
June of 2022 or September of 2022, you get a real bounce back from you know the downside volatility that normalizes. And so, taking advantage of that human behavior from an investor's perspective is really how Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have uh, accumulated the fortunes that they have. And and I would suspect that that sort of behavior will continue into the future. Yeah, and I'll close with one other, a couple other comments from um, from Munger. He said. And this is just, we're just going to close with this. This is really good information. Um, problems from time to time should be expected. This is an inescapable part of life. Number two, wise people do not whine about problems. They prevent them. And lastly, great businesses are rare. Great people are rare too. Great people and great businesses produce fewer problems. Your mission in life is to get into a great business and stay there and build relationships with great people. Doing that will prevent the more majority of problems that are under your under your control. Go for great. And in that, we close. Thanks again for joining us today. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us five stars. Share with your friends and family. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.